as we long since perceived that religious liberty should not be denied, but that it should be granted to the opinion and wishes of each one to perform divine duties according to his own determination, we had given orders that each one, and the Christians among the rest, have the liberty to observe the religion of his choice and his peculiar mode of worship. This is the heart of the Edict of Milan, which was issued by the Emperor Constantine in 313 AD. Now, why am I reading it here? Well, we're a few episodes into a series on early Christian poetry. Really, the Edict of Milan, even though it's an imperial edict, we don't often look at imperial edicts to see, you know, important changes in poetic history, but one of the things that we focused on in our last episode on Lactantius was that Lactantius is intentionally writing a poem that is both explicitly Christian if you know what to look for, but if you don't know what to look for, is essentially a pagan legend. He writes of the phoenix which dies and rises again, which is in one being both begotten and begetter. For the pagan reader, the non-Christian reader, they could read this poem and think it's an interesting, perhaps pagan poem having fun with paradoxical language, the elegaic meter, the alternating lines of dactylic hexameter and dactylic pentameter are interesting. A pagan could read this poem, be interested in it, and walk away. But a Christian could read it and see in it language about his creator and his redeemer, Christ. But it's a safe poem. This can be left laying around in public and no one is going to pick it up and see Lactantius's name on it and want to go persecute him. Because this did happen. In fact, there was a writer, Methodius, who wrote many prose treatises and even some verse in one of his treatises that was actually martyred in 311 AD, just before the Edict of Milan. So writers who were sometimes a bit bold would in fact be killed. Great theologians, philosophers, thinkers from the Christian world, they weren't exempt. It wasn't just like, oh, if you're not useful to the state, we'll kill you. Hey, may maybe you're of high standing in the Roman world, but if we find you're a Christian, you might be literally thrown to the lions. So this is why this edict is so important. It makes not just Christianity legal, but it makes any sort of worship legal. Any sort of following, as Constantine says, any peculiar mode of worship you can perform. It's interesting because Constantine singles out the Christians because he wants to say, especially the Christians. Someone could read this, and if the phrase, and the Christians among the rest, wasn't in there, they would think, ah, this is just talking about whatever pagan god you want to worship is fine. But Constantine makes clear, no, this is trying to to be of service to Christians. And as we know, St. Constantine, by, by his later years, and certainly on his deathbed, uh, he has fully converted. It took many years. He had many misunderstandings of the faith here and there. Through the help of his mother, he came to a right understanding in the end. But Constantine himself ended up moving toward Christianity. And in fact, the institution that's sponsoring this podcast, the St. Constantine School, is named after this man who, who goes from uh, just another pagan emperor to a Christian by the end, and who opened up the doors not just to freedom of worship, but freedom of Christian literary expression. Now, in one sense, 
freedom of worship is more essential to Christian culture than freedom of Christian literary expression. But we're focusing on poetry in this podcast. This is the Poetry Corner podcast. So we're going to look at the dimension of the Edict of Milan and its effect that has to do with Christian literary expression. Now, we've talked about Lactantius, and Lactantius actually lived to see the Edict of Milan. But the Phoenix, because of its hiding Christ, seems to be written in a context that's pre-Edict of Milan. Now, if you want to argue that it's post-Edict of Milan and he's doing a fun allegory, I think you could probably find some scholarly support for that. But as far as we can tell, as far as I've read in the scholarship, it seems to belong to this pre-Milan state. So, who are the poets who start writing after the Edict of Milan who show what open Christian literary expression can be? Well, the first, and one of the most important, really, of all of early Christian poetry, is a man named Juvencus. Now, Juvencus, we know from Jerome, was, in fact, a Spaniard. He lived on the Iberian Peninsula. Probably the Romans would have referred to it as Iberia, not Spain. But he's, we think, probably from Rome or from the more cultured parts of Italy. But he's out on the Spanish frontier. You might even think of it as a, as a sort of Wild West. But, of course, this isn't America. This is Spain. A wilder, more rustic, certainly less developed when it comes to Roman civilization. And even though he's sort of a frontier priest, for lack of a better term, he, as we find out from Jerome, wrote poetry. And in fact, he didn't just write a hymn here or an allegorical poem there like we find from Clement and Lactantius. He wrote what's the longest Christian poem up to that point that we have. Now, we talked about Melito of Sardis, and Melito of Sardis his on Pasca is pretty long, hundreds and hundreds of lines long. Well, Juvencus writes something that starts to look more like the long narrative poems of the Greek and Roman world. Juvencus's work that we have that has survived is called the Liber Evangeliorum. And sometimes it's referred to as the Liber Evangeliorum IV because, in fact, there are four books. In fact, they are the four books of the good news or the gospel, the evangeliorum. We don't know a lot about Juvencus's life, and so it's a little bit speculative, I think, to say a lot more about how he wrote it or what motivated his writing it than this. We know it was written after the Edict of Milan, and it was likely written after the Council of Nicaea in 325. From how Jerome dates it, it looks like it's probably completed or beginning to be read by the public in 330 AD. Now, I want to back up for a second and talk about Nicaea. Of course, the Council of Nicaea is where we get the Nicene Creed. And the Council of Nicaea was primarily interested in questions of the identity of Christ. There was a Bishop Arius who was saying that Christ is greater than man. He's a savior of man, but he's not God. He's kind of like a demigod or maybe a first creation of God, but he's not equal with God. He's certainly not God the Son in a Trinitarian Godhead. And so at Nicaea, luckily, the church put a stop to this heresy, and we have that famous story of St. Nicholas punching Arius in the face as Arius is getting up and proclaiming this heresy. Uh, really fun stories come out of this era. Well, one of the things that also comes out of this era is Juvencus, seemingly now free both politically 
and also socially to write of Christ, not just write about Christ at all, but write about Christ in a Nicene way. He undertakes this, well, really there's no better word for it than epic, an epic about Jesus. Now, it's worth stepping aside here and saying one of the big questions in early Christianity, not just for scholars, not just for poets, really for anyone who has any education in classical learning of the Greek and Roman world, one of the big questions is how do the stories in scripture, how do the scriptures themselves as literary compositions compare to the old classics, to Homer and Virgil, to Aeschylus and Sophocles, to Horace and Cicero and Thucydides, not just literary output, but any sort of output. Are the Christian thinkers and their Hebrew predecessors are they as respectable? Are they as interesting? Are they as worthy of attention as the old Greek and Roman classics? And this is something that, in fact, Augustine talks about a lot in his Confessions, which is written uh, a good 70 years after Juvencus's writing, so not, not too much longer. Augustine says that before he was a Christian, one of the things that held him back from being a Christian is that the Gospels, while interesting stories, Jesus, while an inspiring character, didn't seem to have the grandeur, didn't seem to have the intellectual heritage of the heroes of Homer or even the stories of Socrates, you know, laying down his life in love for the youth of Athens and in love for truth against the, the selfishness and sophistry of his murderers. Augustine had a hard time because Christianity seemed relatively new and not particularly philosophically or literarily sophisticated. Now, for someone like Augustine, who is primarily a rhetorician and philosopher, this kept him away from Christianity. For someone like Juvencus, and as we'll see, many of those who followed Juvencus, this feeling like Christianity was a little bit culturally and literarily inadequate or underdeveloped, this wasn't a reason for them to leave the faith or doubt the faith. This was a reason for them to write in a way that showed the literary respectability, that showed the cultural power of the Christian story. And so that's what that's what Juvencus scholars think wanted to do. But like I said, we speculate a little bit when we imagine that he's sitting there thinking, I will show them that Jesus is as good as Aeneid or the Aeneid or Jesus is as good as Hector or Odysseus. We're not sure. We don't have his writings about it. So like I said, we always speculate a little bit. But I kind of think that's a little bit of the fun. We get these documents that have been preserved by readers because they're they're beautiful or they're historically important or in the case of Juvencus, both. We read them and we speculate, who was this man who wrote this? Now, we live in a day and age when the writers that we revere, we write endless biographies of them. Go to any university library especially, and look at the many, many, many biographies of people like Emily Dickinson or Sylvia Plath or T.S. Eliot or Gwendolyn Brooks. Their lives are very, very attested to. And we can psychoanalyze, you know, the, the dozens and dozens and dozens of letters that they wrote in the single year in which they wrote our favorite poem of theirs. With Juvencus, we don't have any of that. And so what we do have seems to me almost more precious I want to look for a few minutes at the opening poem 
It's kind of the preface poem. We sometimes call these a funny word, a proem. Uh, I want to look at the proem that introduces the Liber Evangeliorum for. Nothing immortal exists in the realm of the earth nor its framework. Neither the orbs nor the kingdoms of men, not Rome nor its glory. Neither the sea nor the land nor the fiery stars in the heavens. For the creator determined for matter a time irrevocable. Then will a violent torrent of fire extinguish the world. Still, there are numberless actions of mortals possessing sublimity, virtues and honors of men that have lingered as long as time lasts, gaining their fame and retaining their strength through the praises of poets. These are the high songs flowing from Homer, that fountain of Smyrna, from Mincian Morrow, the dulcet, yes, Virgil, who is still celebrated. Therefore, the glory that poets accomplish should not be belittled, for it resembles eternity, flowing through ages and ages while earth on her axis revolves and the oceans continue their churning. Stars of the ether are spinning on ordered and moderate pathways. Long is the time that this poetry merited fame and repute, but numerous feats of the ancients are founded on fraudulent stories. Nevertheless, we extol them with faith in their lasting renown. Glory immortal we lend to them, calling them worthy of honor. I sing Jesus the Christ, he and his life-giving deeds, gift of divinity, falsely condemned by the people, though faultless. Nor do I fear that this work will be lost to the fires of the world. Rather, may I be awakened from sleep and delivered from flame, for flashes of flame will proceed from the mouth of the judge of the storm cloud when he descends from his glorious high throne, Christ the Creator. Come then, O Spirit of holiness, sanctify me with your aid, author of all that I sing, sweeten my mind with the depths of the Jordan, that I may write of my Christ with a worthy conception. I love this proem. Juvencus, well, he has to prove a lot in this proem. As far as we know from Jerome's biography of him about 70 or 80 years later, and as far as we know from later writers who really revered Juvencus, Juvencus really is the first Christian to try something like a Christian epic. And so he's got a lot to prove right off the bat. Christianity is newly legal, but very much culturally untested. We know that people like Lactantius can be good tutors, good rhetoricians, maybe throw off a nice lyric poem or two here or there. But a Christian epic poet, we don't know. We don't know whether they're going to be successful. We don't even know if the Christian stories can measure up to the great stories of the heroes like Aeneas or Odysseus compare it to in our day, something like a great Christian director of films. Now, I, I know of Christian directors. I'm friends with some of them who are early in their careers, who are making interesting short films and even feature-length films. But when we think of the great directors of history, when we think of our, our Spielbergs and our Orson Welles and our uh, Scorseses, we don't primarily think of, oh yes, I know of a Christian who makes Christian-themed art, maybe even movies about Jesus, that is as 
respected, is as obviously a master of his art as the great filmmakers of the past. The epic was the great, the greatest of genres in this ancient world. It took a master to write it. And it's difficult to jump into that game. Someone like Clement, someone even like the Solomon poet, who clearly shows they are a master of lyric, they're attempting something that culturally wouldn't have been seen as impressive, even if you have total success in it, as having success in an epic. So Juvencus is taking a risk here, but he comes out swinging. These first lines, I want to look at them in detail. Nothing immortal exists in the realm of the earth, nor its framework, neither the orbs nor the kingdoms of men, not Rome nor its glory, neither the sea nor the land nor the fiery stars in the heavens, for the creator determined for matter a time irrevocable, then will a violent torrent of fire extinguish the world. You want to start epic? Let's, let's remind people that the world will be destroyed by flame. Nothing's more epic than apocalypse. Sometimes we complain in our blockbusters, but I grew up in the 90s, which was the heyday of Los Angeles being destroyed, tornadoes and earthquakes and, you know, half a dozen alien invasions. They always explode LA in 90s blockbusters. Juvencus starts with destroying not LA, not Rome, but the whole universe in fire. He also is interested in questions of immortality. He doesn't just say, bang, boom, apocalypse. He starts with an interesting consideration. Nothing immortal exists in the realm of Earth, nor its framework, nor the orbs, that is the planets out there, nor the kingdoms of men, and then he gets personal, nor Rome and its glory. Of course, he's a Latin-speaking Roman, even though he's out in the provinces of Spain. So he wants to remind us none of this is immortal, not just Rome. He's not just saying political dynasties aren't immortal. He's saying the planet Earth, the stars in the heavens, those won't remain. It's a dwelling on the mutability, not just of himself, not just of poetry, not just of the contemporary political scene, but of all things. Poets love this. If a poet says they don't love describing apocalypse, I think they might be kidding themselves. Or, or maybe they're just a very blessed poet who's not tempted to describe explosions, but poets love being able to talk about the world being consumed by fire. Then will a violent of torrent of fire extinguish the world. Juvencus loves it. Still, now he's about to get calmer. He just destroyed the universe. He's got to show us that we can take him seriously too. He's not just a a fire and brimstone or Michael Bay explosions typewriter. Still, there are numberless actions of mortals possessing sublimity, virtues and honors of men that have lingered as long as time lasts, gaining their fame and retaining their strength through the praises of poets. Okay, so this is a fun sentence because he says, still, there are things that last a long time. What are they? Virtue, honor, fame of great men. Okay, cool. The great deeds of the great that have gone before us. Of course, if you're a Roman, you can't help think of the emperors of the past, of Julius Caesar, of Cato, uh, perhaps even further back, of the great and noble Greeks, Socrates, Plato, Pericles. But at the end of this sentence, Juvencus kind of slips in a very fortuitous reminder 
gaining their fame and retaining their strength through the praises of who? Of poets. So we don't even get five sentences in before Juvencus is reminding us, hey, it's the poets who are the ones that are stretching the memory of virtuous deeds, of famous endeavors. Poets are the ones who make as immortal as they can the deeds of men. Okay, well, he's, he started with destroying the world, and then he's told us, I, as a poet, by implication, am a very powerful individual. These are the high songs flowing from Homer, that fountain of Smyrna, from Mincian Morrow the Dulcet. Yes, Virgil, who all still celebrate. Okay, now he's giving homage to the past, right? Homer and Virgil. If you're going to write an epic, you better, you better pay homage to Homer and Virgil because you owe the popularity of epics to them. Now, we shouldn't forget there are other epic writers. An epic writer I've begun to be interested in is the poet Statius, who wrote in the Roman period, who wrote the Achilleid, which is, I think we actually only have a fragment of it, but it's an epic about Achilles that I think tells a slightly different part of Achilles' life story than the Iliad. So there were other epic poets, Lucan, famously, the Roman poet who wrote an epic about the civil war between Julius Caesar and Pompey the Great. But he's picking out the two that he wants to see his poem and himself as a writer indebted to and in the tradition of. And this is very important in early Christian poetry because one of the big questions we have with early Christians is what do they see as their heritage? Some people like Tertullian very famously said in the second century, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? And the implied answer is nothing. Jerusalem is its own thing. The Judeo-Christian way of life, the Christian teachings, Christian ethics, they don't have anything to do with the Athenian, Socratic, Platonic, Aristotelian, classical Ciceronian tradition, because of course Cicero brings the Platonic and Aristotelian ideals into uh, the more modern Roman world, Tertullian rejects that. He says, no, Jerusalem's doing a different thing. Well, not according to Juvencus. Juvencus, who is going to say by the end of this poem that he will sing of the deeds of Christ, he puts himself in the tradition not of David, not of the earlier Christian poets who have come before him, but Homer and Virgil. That's very, well, one, it's very sly because everybody loves Homer and Virgil. So if you say, I'm writing in their tradition, you'll perhaps get readers. I, I think it's sometimes funny to pick up novels, especially novels aimed at Christian audiences, and see on the back of them a sentence that says, in the tradition of Tolkien and Lewis, this book is the story of etc., etc., etc. I believe it's very dangerous to do that because Tolkien and Lewis are very, very good writers. And whenever I read a book that has on the back of it, in the tradition of Tolkien and Lewis, I think, well, you've just set yourself a very difficult standard to live up to. We'll see if anyone who writes that on the back of their book has lived up to it. And I should say right now, the critical consensus is that Juvencus doesn't live up to Homer and Virgil. How could he? He's writing the first Christian epic. No one's done this before. He doesn't actually have a model for Christian epic. 
And while Juvencus's epic is certainly worth reading, and as I've read this proem, and I hope I've demonstrated through my reading of it, that it's pretty darn good, it's pretty well done, it's not the Aeneid or the Iliad or Odyssey, and no one ever treated it that way. But it's the first attempt, and it explicitly shows that a Christian poet can put themselves in the tradition of the pagan classics, but still be deeply Christian. Though, we should say, there's an uneasiness there. Homer and Virgil are not Christians. They worshipped false gods, if they worshipped gods at all. And if they didn't worship the gods of the pagans, they certainly weren't worshipping Yahweh or Jesus. They were either agnostics or they were pagans. That's problematic if you're seeing them as the tradition that you're writing in. Because how do you deal with the disconnect between your core beliefs, your core views of the universe? Well, Juvencus has an interesting move from this praise of Homer and Virgil to his discussion of his Christian and Judeo-Christian roots. Therefore the glory that poets accomplish should not be belittled, for it resembles eternity flowing through ages and ages while earth on her axis revolves and the oceans continue their churning. Stars of the ether spinning on ordered and moderate pathways. Uh, he just loves that. He, he loves zooming out and showing you the universe. I'm friends with people who make movies, and I, I don't know how they do what they do, and I'm very impressed by them. One of the things that I love about poetry, and sometimes feel like it's cheating about poetry, is to write a line showing planets and galaxies and ocean depths doesn't cost any more money than writing a line about the grass in the field. Whereas making a film, it costs a lot more to show a scene of galaxies and planets spinning and ocean depths than it does to shoot a scene of grass blowing in the wind in a field. Poetry's cheap. You don't have a special effects budget for poetry. Or if there is a special effects budget, all it costs is the work of your imagination, which is difficult, which is hard. To imagine such that you put your imagination on the page in a way that inspires those images in your reader, that inspires your reader through those images, that, that takes work. Now we should pause for a second and say, what meter is Juvencus writing in? Now I've translated this, and so I've tried to imitate the dactylic hexameter. Earth on her axis revolves and the oceans continue their churning. That is da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That dactylic meter is da-da-da, that's a dactylic foot of three syllables, the first stressed or long, the next two unstressed or short. Now, as I've talked about on this poetry podcast before, and I think sometimes my listeners, their eyes or ears may glaze over when I say it again, there's a difference between accentual syllabic meter of the English tradition, where we base our meter on stressed and unstressed syllables, and the quantitative tradition of the ancients, which is based on patterns of long and short vowel sounds. I won't go into it anymore, but it's very helpful to know this, especially if you want to be able to marvel at the artistry of ancient poetry. Too often, and I've talked about this on this podcast before, too often we translate all ancient poetry into free verse and we lose elements, distinctive metrical qualities, distinctive metrical virtues, and formal virtues of ancient verse. So, 
He doubles down in these lines we've read on, look, poets are really important. Their glory that they accomplish, now not all poets accomplish glory, so this isn't true of every poet, but the accomplished poet, the glory that, uh, that some poets accomplish, especially Virgil and Homer, should not be belittled, for it resembles eternity. Wow, that's, that's pretty high praise for his own profession. No one ever said poets were modest, I guess. Long is the time that this poetry merited fame and repute, but... Now here we get the problem. But numerous feats of the ancients are founded on fraudulent stories. Nevertheless, we extol them with faith for in their lasting renown. Glory immortal we lend them, calling them worthy of honor. But they're liars. That's a problem. It's not just that Virgil and Homer believe in a different god than Juvencus does. They straight up lie about the divine. Now, this is very interesting because I think there's a whole approach to reading literature. And this, this emerges, at least in the Renaissance with people like Philip Sidney, that says, look, literature never claims to make truth claims. When we read Homer or Virgil, we shouldn't say, oh, well, it's not true that Zeus exists, so he's a liar. Well, no, he's telling a story. He's creating an imaginative world, Homer is, Virgil is. We shouldn't take these as historical truth claims. Well, that's not the view of, of Juvencus, and it wasn't the view of most early Christian thinkers, let alone poets, when they saw the pagans around them reading Homer, reading Virgil, and taking seriously the theology that's presented in them, they thought, well, Homer and Virgil are lying about the divine, and the people around me are believing it and, and worshiping the false gods that are depicted therein. So what is the Christian poet to do? He can write openly about his faith in Christ, but his main models for his craft, poetry, in this case, epic poetry, the greatest of, of poetic genres, his only models in that craft are pagan liars who lead people astray, who one might, if, if one wanted to be bold, who damn souls or lead souls down to damnation. This isn't a, a minor thing. Homer is a liar who lies about the divine and leads, leads whole cultures to worship his false gods. So what's the Christian poet to do? Well, this is what Juvenka says he will do. I sing Jesus the Christ, he and his life-giving deeds, gift of divinity, falsely condemned by the people, though faultless. Nor do I fear that this work will be lost to the fires of the world. There's that fire of the world again. We can't go 10 lines without being reminded of apocalypse. Rather, may I be awakened from sleep and delivered from flame, for flashes of flame will proceed from the mouth of the judge of the storm cloud when he descends from his glorious high throne, Christ the creator. Okay, this is awesome. The judge of the storm cloud, if you encounter that phrase in pagan works, that's usually used of someone like Zeus, right? Zeus hurls his lightning bolts from the storm clouds. But who is the judge of the storm cloud now? It's Jesus. So using language that reminds us of some of the most grandiose and epic language of the pagans, he describes Jesus. He writes the error. He flips the lie into truth. There is a judge of the storm clouds, he says, but it's Jesus. It's not Zeus. There is a bright and shining God of order and light, but it's not Apollo. 
It's Christ. There is a God of victory who triumphs over his enemies in his brilliant flashing armor. But it's not Athena. It's Christ. And then at the end, he turns to himself. Come then, O spirit of holiness, sanctify me with your aid, author of all that I sing. Sweeten my mind in the depths of the Jordan, that I may write of my Christ with a worthy conception. We'll end with this. We started with a guy who's showing off, who's given us the special effects show. A guy who then turns and shows us that he's within the classical tradition. But at the end, he's taken on the language and the posture of a repentant sinner who's asking the Holy Spirit for aid. Not, you know, the spirit of the muse, Calliope, not Athena, but, but the Holy Spirit. But in asking a spirit for aid, he's following the tradition of Homer and Virgil in as much as they also asked a spirit for aid. They asked the muse for aid or the goddess for aid. He is asking the Holy Spirit. So Juvencus, in a pretty rudimentary way, we'll see this developed even further in, in later poets, but in a rudimentary way, Juvencus is figuring out how to write in an epic form, dactylic hexameter, invoking a spirit for aid in helping you sing, but plugging in Christian analogs for the pagan muse, the pagan meter, the pagan hero. And he does pretty well in this introduction. Now, if you go on and read the rest of the Liber Evangeliorum 4, it's a little disappointing at places because he retells the gospel stories in a way that's incredibly faithful to the synoptic gospels to the point where nothing unpredictable really happens if you're familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. One of the interesting things, and this is, this is worth looking at if you're interested in Juvencus, one of the interesting things is which stories of Christ he chooses from which gospel. But if you're familiar with the synoptic gospels, it almost reads like he just paraphrased Matthew and or Luke's major stories into the right meter, but almost kind of kept all the same sentences in the same order and certainly the same sequence of events. Readers were impressed by it and later poets say, oh, Juvencus, that great early Christian epic writer, I like him, I'm writing in his tradition. But after Juvencus writes this, it becomes clear that we need to keep trying. This hasn't, be, this hasn't been the Iliad of its day. It has a smashing good intro and a very faithful to the gospel stories body of the narrative. But in the end, one might want a new twist on presenting the New Testament in poetry. And we're going to get that twist within 30 years of Juvencus writing with Faltonia Batitia Proba. But that's for next time. Thank you. This has been the Poetry Corner Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell. And if you want to give us feedback, if you have a question or comment or even idea of, oh, could you go into more detail about this poem or that aspect of poetry, email us. We have a new email. It's poetrycorner at stconstantine.org. Shoot us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Have a great day.